Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's guest is Nobody. I had a few guests lined up this week, uh, but it has not happened. There's been a sort of a storm of coincidences and work and I haven't been able to be as flexible as I normally am about working around other people's schedules. So what's going to happen this week is I'm going to have a chat with myself. I'm going to talk to you about some of the things that I've been thinking about recently and answer some questions that I've been getting in on the email and on Twitter. I don't know if I am capable of doing a solo podcast of any length, uh, so this could be an absolute disaster. But I have my cup of tea and I have my microphone and uh, let's embark on that. It's a little bit strange to not be bouncing off anybody. Um, so let's see, let's see. Uh, thank you everybody who has been emailing in. AliceRFraser at gmail.com is the place to do that. Thank you everybody who's been subscribing on Patreon, patreon.com slash AliceFraser. Remember that if you are a $5 subscriber, you get access to... The Resistance, the full show of The Resistance, which is now no longer on iView. It's uh, it's only available via the Patreon. So if you want somebody to see it, if you want to refer it to somebody, or if you're not in Australia, which was always true, uh, because iView is geolocked, then yes, please send them over to patreon.com slash Fraser for that, or for my general writing of thoughts, or for the uh, keeping on updating of you about what what I'm up to. So what have I been up to? I have just done my solo show Empire in Sydney at the Sydney Comedy Store which was really lovely. It was really really lovely. I was extremely nervous about it. I hadn't done the show for about six weeks. I wasn't sure if I'd remember it. I wasn't sure if I'd have anybody in the audience because those kind of one-off solo shows you don't have a sense of of who's going to come. You don't know how whether they're, they're advertising or all of this stuff you don't know if anyone's seen it or going to buy tickets or all of those things are just a terrifying panic attack for me uh, which culminated in a Thursday night of no sleep it was I mean when I say panic attack I'm not super subject to anxiety the last time I had real you know like proper anxiety was when I was working in a law firm and that was not fun I'd, I'd go in I'd wake up just feeling just gutted when you wake up feeling not not discontent but like miserable like something bad has happened in in the waking up that's when you know you're in the wrong career uh, I don't I, do, I don't talk so much about that with the law I talk a, a lot about why uh, I chose to do comedy but not so much about why I didn't like law and that was one of the things I mean it was a, it was not it was not the environment for me I wasn't very happy I couldn't I couldn't not take corporate life personally in the in the way that it's sort of very toxic to people. It's not built for humans. It's built to register financial gains and losses and sublimate human need to those things. And when you're doing that at kind of very intense levels in like this relatively elite law firm, I just wasn't really able to to brush it off or not not take it on board. Anyway, that is that is a tangent. Sleepless night on Thursday night. I had a very sleepless night. I was, I just didn't feel, I, I didn't feel great anxiety, but I lay down and thought, how do you go to sleep? And once you start thinking about how you do anything that you do without thinking about, it is an absolute disaster. That is a way to bite your tongue 
forget how to chew, forget how to walk, anything that you're doing without thinking about, the moment you start thinking about it, it becomes a lot harder. So that was Thursday night. And then Friday, I got into Sydney, I hung out with my dad, and it was so lovely to hang out with my dad. And I thought, oh, well, I should be, you know, memorizing the show and getting it back on board. But dad was, it was really nice to see dad. And he's packing up the house. So I was helping him pack up the house. And uh, it, it was strange to sort of be back in my bedroom in that family home and it's all packed up and not really feeling like it's home anymore. And and then I went and did my show and it was fantastic. It was so nice. I was so worried about it and it was so nice. It was I, – I remembered it. People came. People laughed. The costume still fits me, you know. I mean, not that it wouldn't. It's only six weeks. A lot of things can happen in six weeks. But uh, that was really nice. I really liked that. And then I hung out with some family friends after the show and said hello to everybody who'd come. And it, that that bit went really well. And then the next day, which was Saturday, I'm just telling you my weekend at this point, but I promise I'll get into more uh, thoughtful things. I'm getting a run on, guys. I'm, I'm just – I mean, this is – this is not the easiest thing to do in the world, which is a strange thing because I do talk into a microphone with no answer quite a lot. And if an audience is there and they're not laughing, uh, it's a different thing because you're still getting some sort of response. And at the moment, I'm, I am just talking to myself alone in a room, which is a strange feeling. It's, a, it's not something that I would normally do. I don't think I've ever done it before. I think sometimes I sing to myself, but I don't think I talk to myself, certainly not at any length. I'll sort of say a, a sentence or something, Eureka, um, but I don't, I don't sit and talk for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes to myself. I have a lot more respect for the people who do that now. There are a few, a few long-form podcasters who can talk to themselves for hours I feel either I feel either respectful, more respect, yes, definitely more respect, and a little bit intimidated by that. Maybe maybe they have a producer in the room. Just having an interested-looking person in the room, I think, would make me feel less alien to myself in this moment. So Saturday, Saturday, I flew back to Melbourne. And I landed and went to see Alan Cummings' show at the Comedy uh, Theatre, the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne, and that was very, uh, that was fantastic. I mean, I was, I was a fan of Alan Cumming when I was young. When the X Men movies came out, I thought he was fantastic as Nightcrawler. I was a big nerd, and I sort of followed his career from there. I think I'd seen him in something else before that, and really liked him. I'm hoping that X-Men was not my entry point to the work of Alan Cumming. But if it was, so be it. I thought he was fantastic. And uh, so watching him sing and not having listened to much music in the last couple of years for reasons that I've mentioned before, watching him sing sappy songs, deliberately emotionally manipulative songs, was really, really uh, an intense and wonderful experience. And... uh, I, he's a fantastic performer. It was great. He wore pleather pants, which I can't approve of, but it was a fantastic show and there was a great cellist and a great drummer and a great pianist and he, he's a performer and he just did that kind of old Hollywood story, cabaret style show, old-fashioned old show. It was really good. And then I rushed off to the Comics Lounge in North Melbourne and did 
10 minutes of comedy to some people who really did not want to hear it. <laughs> they were they, I was very close to the end of what had been apparently a very long and very delayed show, but uh, it was it was a nice nice it was a bucket of cold water. Uh, just that oh wow, you you get on stage and there's 200 people who suddenly loathe you for no reason before you've even said anything you're like oh they hate me it was you know that's always a a wake-up call it makes you realize that I mean we have that a lot in the world at the moment where people will just hate somebody who they don't know it's a a fascinating a fascinating dynamic I don't really understand it I'm I find it terrifying I think because I was you know bullied at school I if somebody's sort of, I'm always worried that that people are going to turn on me for some reason. I think that uh, in this career, I mean I, that that sounds paranoid when I say it like that. I mean in this career, I'm by definition treading on the edges of acceptable topics because comedy is sometimes transgressive. It's it's questioning. It's probing. It's uh, shocking sometimes. You, you, you're playing with what's acceptable to think about and what's acceptable to say. And at some point, I am sure I'm going to cross the line. I'm 100% sure I'm going to do one of those things and then uh, online will come for me. And I, I, I know, I, I feel almost certain that that will happen at some point. And it's, I don't know how I will manage it. I hope I'll manage it okay. I hope I won't, you know, pile further petrol onto a fire I hope that I won't uh, cowardly rescind words that I did mean if I meant what I said whenever it happens I hope if I did do something wrong that I'll apologize sincerely in a way that people believe but I know this is a kind of a future hypothetical but I feel like it is it is inevitable if I continue to build any kind of profile that's just this is the world now which is worrying it's worrying to me when people don't like somebody who they don't know. Beyond beyond disapproving of their behaviour, just loathing someone who you know nothing about is 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 weird. I think that there's a enjoying the idea of somebody else's pain is something that is is quite, seems to be quite common. I don't know if it's just a rhetorical thing. Like if it's something that people, oh, I hope you'd burn up in a fire. I wish you'd, all of that is kind of imagining someone else's pain. I I don't know if that's like cartoonish and satisfaction or if it's just genuinely hoping someone else gets hurt. I think there's a big difference between hoping somebody stops doing what they're doing or, you know, goes away, vanishes. Like I wouldn't mind if Trump just sort of vanished one day. But the idea that, you know, somebody who you don't know who said something wrong in an argument or said something you disagree with should be punished or hurt is, is so viscerally gross. It's just so upsetting. And uh, I was thinking about that when I was – I my, got this podcast, other podcast commissioned by the ABC. It won't come out until September. But it uh, the idea of it is sort of dealing with these trolls and – and weird behavior online where people have lost perspective not not kind of not a serious show a funny show not exposing people or naming names or trying to find out their weird psychological pasts but more sort of finding the light side and the fun side in 
in those moments that up until now I've just found so depressing on the, on the internet where someone will just overstep the line of what anyone in real life would ever say to another human being in real life. And uh, that should be fun. I hope you uh, will listen. I'll tell you about it all when it, when it comes out and I'll, I'll hassle you, I'm sure. That's the other thing I was thinking about recently is how much to hassle because you, you, it's, it's hard online. I don't know how much, you know, you want to hear about what I'm doing. If you're not in the same city as me, does it annoy you if I'm posting about a show I'm doing in Sydney? If you live in Melbourne, does it annoy you if I post about a show I'm doing in Melbourne? If you're in London, does it – I really don't know because I'm not you. Let me know. Email me or uh, tweet me. Tell me if you if you like it or if you dislike it. Uh, I I do. I'm gonna get this. I'm I'm gonna make this into a conversation one way or another, aren't I? Because I can't talk into the void. I need an answer, even if it's delayed. Uh, and then I went after the comics lounge. I'm coming back to the story. I'm coming back to the story. I went to the comics lounge, and then we returned to the comedy theatre, and everyone. Alan Cumming and his team and various people at my management were standing in the uh, green room performers area downstairs. But because because the lights had been too bright, Alan and his team had decided that it was not party. It wasn't party enough. So they opened the fridge. And so the party was lit by the fridge. There were, peop- there were about maybe 15 people gathered around a fridge which would regularly turn off the light and then they would close the fridge and reopen the fridge and continue the party and uh, on a Melbourne winter night I don't I mean it's sort of the opposite of being gathered around a campfire it was a very it was a very strange experience and there was a lot of dancing and a lot of singing and that made me very happy uh, because it's been a long time since I danced or sang because I hate fun but that the very small party uh, that that was about the size that I, I enjoy, about, about 10, 15 people, all very nice, all very interesting. And uh, this sort of hero of my, of my childhood, I guess, dancing and, and making everybody stand around a fridge. And then uh, Joel Creasy said that we should all go to a gay club and the night went downhill from there. It, it, yeah, it's a very strange thing to be a lady in a gay club. A, it's a, I mean, it is. It's just a strange thing to be a lady in a gay club and it's a stranger thing to be a sober lady in a gay club. And uh, there, were, I, there was something, I, I guess, vaguely political in that uh, a lot of guys, strangers, asked to touch my boobs, which I don't think is something that you should do, even if you're gay, in that I wouldn't... I wouldn't grab the penis of a man to whom I was not attracted and say that it was okay because I didn't find him attractive. I wouldn't grab the vagina of a woman to whom I was not attracted uh, or, you know, other secondary sex characteristics. I wouldn't tweak the nipple of a man who I wasn't attracted to or a woman who I wasn't attracted to and say that it was okay because I wasn't going to try to have sex with them. It was it was a strange dynamic, but again, you know, it's a gay club. The rules are different, and I haven't been to one for a while because I hate fun. That's, this is this is what serves me right is just having, in the last, I guess, 
in the last five years since things started to go really downhill with mum, I haven't been out very much. After she died even, I lost the habit maybe of going to parties. So last night was nice. I, I did enjoy the strangeness of it and I can have fun if I'm forced to, which is a good reminder. <laughs> it's a good reminder. If I'm forced to by my 15-year-old self, if I am outside a theatre at night at the end of a party and Alan Cumming says, come along, you're cool, we'll have fun, I go, oh, 15-year-old self, I owe you this. <laughs> I owe you I owe you going to a gay club at 2 o'clock in the morning with Joel Creasy and... And Nightcrawler. So that was that was last night. And today I have had a much quieter day, a much more uneventful day, in which I thought about a few things. So here we come to a few, a few actual thoughts that I've had recently. Uh, so this is the first one. The first one is uh, they did some studies, and I was listening to this, and I heard about it, I think, on a Sam Harris podcast. I like Sam Harris. I don't agree with him on everything, but I think he is intellectually honest. I know you might disagree with me on that, but I think he does his absolute best to uh, think his way out of out of his own brain and, and approach the world as it really is. I think he, he makes a great effort to do that and he apologizes when he thinks he's wrong, which is more than most people do. So, uh, in on that podcast, uh, I think it was the one about uh, altruism, effective altruism. They were talking about advertising and the the logical sort of fallacy that is built into people, where they're advertising charities. And the most effective way to advertise a charity is by showing one child, because if you show two children, people give less. If you show nine children, people give less. If, so if you expand the scope of the problem where, you know, there's a million children starving, people can't care about it. That's really interesting to me in light of uh, this recent discussion, and I don't know how much of it is a, is a sort of a media puff, but about adding um, sort of adding black and brown to the LGBTQ, etc. flag, to the rainbow flag, adding a brown stripe and a black stripe to mention explicitly the people of colour who have always been a part of the gay community, to the idea that the rainbow is sort of inherently or by default white, which is a strange a strange sort of perception to begin with. But, but uh, it's also something that this idea that when somebody will be presenting their issue, someone else will jump in and say, well, what about these problems? What about this problem? What about my problem? Talking about domestic violence against women, someone will jump in and say, but what about domestic violence against men? Or someone will say, well, domestic violence against men, and someone else will say, don't you know that more women are the subject of domestic violence? And then someone else will say, but don't you know? And, and I think what that does is exactly the same thing as when you have nine starving children. People, the more, it's not that people can only care about one thing. It's that they can only care about one thing at a time. We're not very good at, at thinking 
about more than one thing. So you need one person to represent the plight of of the starving children in Africa. And if that one person is a girl, you can't go, oh, but what about the starving boys in Africa? You have to, you have to go, well, the starving children in Af- Africa are represented by this one girl and this problem, we're going to deal with this problem. And then tomorrow it's the boy. And tomorrow, I don't know what I'm saying here. I don't know what my point is. All I know is that I think the same thing happens with this, but what about sort of knee-jerk response that happens when somebody's talking about a problem that exists, then, you know, in the instance of the rainbow flag, that gay people have been told to be ashamed of themselves. That's, you know, the, the pride flag is, is a defiant declaration of pride in identity. And so that the identity is then split up into smaller and smaller and smaller subcategories. Uh, and then each of those subcategories sort of needs to fight for their right to be included in the excluded. It's a strange process, I think. But that reminds me of the next thing that I was going to talk about. I, I don't have an answer for the, that, by the way. I was just thinking that that, I think, is what's happening. I think that's what's, what the brain problem is that people become overwhelmed by a proliferation of problems whenever one problem comes up um that that they don't it it makes people feel helpless and it makes people feel annoyed and it makes people feel resentful because when they bring up the thing that they care about and somebody adds to it uh, it's bringing the second child in they know that the reader will care less about the original problem that that people are i think they have that sense if that is true that's my feeling. Anyway, the second thing that I wanted to talk about, I'm pretty proud of myself, by the way. I'm, I've talked for more than 20 minutes to myself in a room alone for the first time in my life. So you're welcome to that. I've done it for you. Um, so the second idea that I had that I was thinking about, that I was wrestling with today, was as an offshoot of that, identity politics which is this buzzword of the day. It's a kind of a hack thing. Um, I have a feeling, let's back up a step. I have a feeling that the kinds of movements that mostly succeed are the ones that have been able to tap their roots, if they're trees, uh, tap their roots into the fuel source, into the water aquifer that is capitalism. So the feminism that exists at the moment, the feminism that is most prominent is the feminism that is most marketable the feminism uh, that says the best kind of woman is the best worker the most successful woman in the workplace is the most successful kind of woman rather than saying for example we should uh, place an economic value on building a human being building a human being uh, and that as a contribution society should be valued at near priceless, but we're going to attribute a value to it and pay every mother whose child is a decent human being, you know, whatever, 30% on top of her superannuation, which is, uh, it will close and erase and, and overlap the gap between male and female savings into retirement, which is mainly, mainly dictated by women who lose time and career opportunities. Uh, looking after children, maybe that is the thing. Maybe you get a tax break when you hit 60 if your child hasn't murdered anybody. My point being that 
the most successful uh, ideologies in our society seem to be, seem to me to be, this is my thesis, uh, seem to me to be the ones that that can be co-opted by or fueled by or run alongside capitalism. Um, even anti-capitalist ideologies, when they, for example, you know, anti-capitalists on Twitter and Facebook are making money for Twitter and Facebook. That's how it works, the attention economy uh, or papers or, or what have you. So um, where was I? I was thinking about this in terms of identity politics and how much being online has has uh, shaped identity politics, I think. Um, so I've got a, I've got a, a smaller claim that I'm going to make, and then a bigger claim. So which is to say that a claim that I think seems to work intuitively, and then one that's a bit more of a stretch. And the first one is that um, we have this kind of modularization, modular, modular, modularization of of identity, which is uh, possibly shaped by computer technology. So we build these avatars online, these personalities online by our Facebook posts and our Twitter posts and our filling in of forms, which require you, by filling in this form or by being this person or by joining a group, um, you are categorizing your personality and, and then you subcategorize your personality. You are you are a female in your, in your late 20s, early 30s. You are... Uh, of colour or you of this ethnicity or this religion and, and all of these kind of categories come up. And, of course, that's true, all those things, the facts about you. But who you are when you do this kind of modular identity, I am a fat woman, I am a, a thin, resentful man, uh, It who who you are becomes what you are. You sublimate your your real personality, who you are, who you actually are as a human being, to these f- these external factors, what you are. You know, you are tall or you are oppressed or you are an oppressor. And, of course, 100% your experiences inform your identity. Um, you are shaped by what you are in society, what your place is in society, as it were, uh, how other people treat you and your experiences are informed by the attributes other people attach to you by virtue of your perceived category. If if you are uh, overweight, if you're a fat woman, then people will treat you in a particular way and that will shape your experience in a particular way and that will shape who you are. So who you are is um, informed by what you are. But you, you are more than the sum of your parts, I think, and I think, I think we've lost sight of that in this discussion. That that in in the idea that your identity is is informed by your place in society, and that those things that can be very unfair, and that that you can have experiences in one as a member of one category that people in other categories cannot have and will never understand truly. They might understand in a sort of an empathetic and projecting way, but they won't ever really absorb or feel the same way as you do. But you're more. 
You're more than that. You're more than your experiences. You're more than the sum of your parts. You're more than a, a spreadsheet of categories, I think. I think the initial project of identity politics was sort of to say that maybe, to say I'm not just a person of colour. You know, you're you're treating me like I'm just this category. Uh, and and that makes my experience of the world different to yours. But then the next step seems to have disappeared of stripping away those categories and trying to say, well, you know, if you're a working class person, if we gave you an education, then you're a person and what person are you? And that you're a person whether or not you have an education. So that's my that's my smaller claim I think and then my larger claim is that maybe the capitalism thing is one step further embedded into the identity politics thing and this is getting into conspiracy theory territory by the way uh, it feels like identity politics has sublimated itself to capitalism by <laughs> go with me here by replacing your personhood with your demographic qualities like you are in identity politics you are demographifying yourself and maybe that's maybe that's just to make advertising easier <laughs> I don't know if I stand by that I just was thinking that that's what I thought today I don't know if I, I'll have to sleep on that and uh, let me know what you think this has been uh, an interesting experience a very rambly experience I have made it to half an hour, which, you know, given that the average podcast is with two people and goes for an hour, I feel quite pleased with. Let me know if this is an experiment that you would like me to repeat or never repeat again. I am happy either way. If you tell me never to do it again, say it in a, a nice way, please. Uh, the medium is the message and so on. Send it in a, a pleasant email rather than an angry tweet. And... Um, or if you do send an angry tweet, then um, I'll probably use it in my in my in my ABC podcast. So, uh, oh yes, if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to contribute to that, just send me a screenshot of of something mean or horrible or bizarre that somebody has sent you online at some point, and I I will if you send it to me, I'll use it in the podcast. Or you can send it to me if you don't want me to use it in the podcast. I, confidentiality is, is is confidentiality I am not Mia Friedman if you want me to keep something secret I will but uh that I'm collecting I'm collecting particularly strange moments of internet interaction for this podcast and you would be doing me a great favor if you would send me the ones that you've got just just someone who's way off target who has seen something that isn't there in your writing or in your online presence or who has uh, come for you online in a very strange way. I'm interested in that. So email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. Tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. If you want to tweet me with uh, a screenshot of some strange internet interaction, use the hashtag trollplay because that will be the name of the podcast when it comes out in September, ages away, ages away, I shouldn't even be plugging it. What I should be plugging is London. I'll be in London on the 2nd of July. I'll be doing a 
a preview show of Empire at Drury Lane at the Prince of Wales pub. And and on the 9th of July, I will be doing a preview show at JW3, uh, which is a place. And you can look up the details of that online on my Twitter or on my Facebook. And then there will be a few more previews and then I will be Edinburgh for the whole of August and then I will collapse into a hole and never do anything again. So, thank you for listening. Let me know if you liked it. You're having tea with Alice. I'll see you next week. Lally rifles on